You're listening to Rocks Across the Pond, the curling podcast that goes around the globe looking for the best stories in the world's coolest sport. We have curling news and views for everyone, whether you're playing in your Thursday league or following your favorite teams on tour. Now here are your hosts, Ryan McGee and our professor of Peel, Jonathan Havercroft. Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining us for Rocks Across the Ponds. Welcome to Curling Series. This is a group of episodes that we're putting out there that is meant to help people who might be watching curling for the first time at the 2022 Olympics in Beijing, help them better understand what on earth is going on in this unique sport that Jonathan and I know and love, uh, but some of you may be seeing for the first time. Uh, I know it took me forever to really understand what on earth was going on when I first saw this sport during the 2006 Olympics. And I know the questions that I get when I teach Learn to Curls during an Olympic rush. So hopefully people will find this series useful. And hopefully it's something our regular listeners can pass along to their friends who might be finding this sport. In our first episode of this series, we went over the setup for Olympic curling and how the games are actually going to be played. Additional episodes will go over the strategy that you'll see from the teams, the history of the sport, uh, the teams that are actually participating in these tournaments, and much more. But in this episode, we are focusing on the things you will hear and explanations of the jargon that you'll hear while the players are talking to each other and even what you'll hear from some of the commentators during the game. Now, in that first episode, we covered the markings that you'll see on the ice, the positions on the curling team. So when we mention those today, we'll probably give a brief explanation. But if you want something more in depth, please go back and listen to that first episode. Also in this series, to help us make sure that we aren't assuming any knowledge, and we are truly giving you something that can introduce newcomers to the sport. We've invited some friends of ours who are familiar with curling but aren't complete nerds like Jonathan and I, uh, to call a timeout on us, throw a flag on the play whenever we fall short of giving a good enough description of what's going on during a curling game. Uh, my co-host, Jonathan Havercroft, joins us today from Southampton, England, and also joining us today is my friend Meredith Kane. Meredith is a producer for 92.3 The Fan in Cleveland and the Cleveland Browns Radio Network and co-host of the That's What Be Said podcast covering Cleveland sports. She's also a fellow Hokie, so Jonathan is surrounded by Virginia Tech fans today, but we will try to keep the commiserating to a minimum and focus on what you'll hear while watching curling at the 2022 Olympics and beyond. Meredith, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Wait, uh, so tell us, what is, what's your favorite part of curling? Is it this? Is it the, the stuff that people are screaming at each other uh, while the game is going on? It is, but I also love the strategy surrounding it. To me, it, all, it feels like chess on ice. And I think that's one of the things that I really like about it. And it's also a really suspenseful sport. Like you've got them throwing the rocks and it's like, are they going to, you know, are they going to get the hit? Are they going to get the block? What's, what's happening? So you're just, you're on the edge, like literally you're on the edge of your seat. And I don't mean to sound facetious because I'm completely genuine when I say that. Well, we do want to get, uh, let everyone get to know you a little bit better. So just really quick, um, where are you from originally and what was it like growing up there? Uh, so I'm originally from Washington, DC, uh, was born and raised right outside of the city in, in Northern Virginia. And it was weird. Um, Washington, D.C. is a really bizarre 
spot in America, uh, just because it's not unlike any other city in the country. And it's, it's really unique. And I've learned since moving away from the area that a lot of the things that I experienced as a child, like, aren't normal. Like, it's not normal to not know what your parents do for a living because they have top secret security clearances and they can't talk about their work at home, like stuff like that. Um, also, like growing up, one of the members of my synagogue was uh, a high ranking official in the White House. So any like any of the high Jewish holidays, we would always have secret service agents there to, you know, for protection purposes. And I was just like, I, I grew up <laughs> realizing that that's not normal. <laughs> so it was I wouldn't trade it for the world. But yeah, growing up in uh, in D.C. is a very unique experience. Right. And then how were you first exposed to curling and what about it do you find interesting other than other than, like you said, the strategy? So I had to have been I don't remember which Olympics it was, but one of my favorite things about the Olympics is that you literally have two weeks straight of sports at all hours of the day. Um, And that's one of the things that I love the most about it. So I think wouldn't it? It may have been uh, 20, what was it, 2010? 20, was 2010 a winter year or was that a summer yep. year? 2010 was Vancouver, so yeah. Yeah, so I think that was the year and we just had sports on all day, every day in in the house and we would turn it on and there would be curling and we're like, all right, let's watch this. And I'm like, oh my God, this is so interesting. <laughs> what's going on here? Like I need to Google some of this stuff immediately, but I also have no idea what's going on. But like you can't look away because it's so fascinating. Right. And then today we're talking specifically about jargon, the stuff that they're yelling at each other on the ice. Is there something regarding that that you're most interested in to talk about today? I always want to know what they're yelling and why they're yelling it, um, because it's also hard to understand what they're saying, too. Like, I, I can't count because I, I remember there have, been, there have been a few times where I was watching curling and I would message you because I knew we were watching the same match. And I'm like, what are they saying? Like, it sounds like they're screaming, ha, ha, what are they saying? <laughs> Jonathan, so. Jonathan's a skip, so he's the one usually yelling that at me. So I'll let him explain that uh, when we get to what they're screaming at each other when they're sweeping. Because that's, that's I'm usually on the receiving end of that. <laughs> also, how do you understand? Because especially in in like an ice arena, it's all hard surfaces. So your voice is just resonating and bouncing everywhere. Like, how can you understand what they're saying? That's why you got to yell loud, right, Jonathan? Yeah, you got to yell loud. I mean, for me, the yelling's my favorite part, to be honest. Just like for playing, <laughs> it's like if you've had a bad week at work and you get to go out and just curl and you just get to yell for two hours, like, no. <laughs> no so questions asked, it's cathartic right so that's how you get your aggression out is by yelling at your teammates yes and you can like you know <laughs> everything's allowed and it's good communication so it's a good it's a good stress reliever to be honest and one of the unique things about this sport is that the players are mic'd, so you're going to be able to hear all of this uh, and that's kind of why we wanted this to be one of the, the the first episodes in this series is that's that's why a lot of people tune in is because it is interesting to hear what the players are talking about. Yeah. So because another thing that I was wondering is how much communication do you guys have during the match? Because sometimes it seems like there's not a lot of talking going on between people at all. And then when you throw the stone, 
it's all of a sudden everyone's yelling or the skip is yelling and screaming. So I think that that's another thing because everything about curling is strategic. And that's, and like Mm -hmm. I said before, that's one of the things that I absolutely love about it, but everyone kind of has to be on the same page, right? Like you can't just say like, if, and who's making those decisions. So like, I guess if you have someone saying, all right, let's go for a block. And you're like, you know what? I'm just going to go out there and I'm going to try to knock their stones completely out of the house. Like, <laughs> like what if you go, like, if, like what happens if you have somebody go, who goes rogue? Yeah, no, that's a good point in. So a lot of when the communication happens and we're, we'll divide this up into pre-shot mid shot, which is the fun stuff. And then post shot, what you're going to hear from the players. And so a lot of that communication is done pre-shot. And so when a shot is called, as you said, all the players on the team need to know that the important things are the shot type, the weight, or the basically how fast you're going to be throwing the stone down the ice, the turn, which is which direction that you're going to spin the stone, be it clockwise or counterclockwise. And those are interns and outturns. Uh, that's the curling terms for them. Uh, and then where, uh, where the rock that's being thrown needs to end, needs to end up and any relevant information about the ice conditions and early in an end, a lot of these calls are going to be done with signals only. And these players in the Olympics, they've been playing together for a long time. They have a pretty good idea of what their team strategy is. They've probably had a meeting beforehand on what their early end strategy is going to be. And they can honestly probably start delivering the stone before their skip even is set up to, you know, call, uh, call how to sweep once the rock is delivered. But as more rocks are put in play, you'll start to hear a lot more discussion from the players about the shot that's being called. So Jonathan, do you want to start us on the the main kinds of shot types that exist. So let's start with shot types. When you hear the players discussing their next shot, you'll hear them uh, use a lot of different terms to describe the same shot. So Jonathan, what are the what are the main categories of shot type that we're going to hear them talk about? So I, I guess the big three, right? So there's what's called the takeout, which is, as it sounds, you're trying to take normally an opponent stone out of play. Uh, and so that those ones you're going to throw hard. Then there's the draw, where you're trying to put your stone in the rings. And then there's a guard, which is where you're trying to put one up front, normally to try to block access to something in the rings. So I guess that would bring everything to the, I guess, the pre-shot discussion, because you've got those terms Mm -hmm. up on the list. So what do you guys talk about before you go to take your shot? So it's going to depend, but basically... Normally, you'll, your team will have a communication system worked out, and it's probably 80% hand signals just because it's so loud So and, and like brush gestures. So normally, the skip will gesture with the broom where they want it. They may have a hand signal for how hard they want you to throw it. Um, at the pro level, you'll almost never see a hand signal for what turn you want because that's kind of obvious. But in club play, you'll see that a lot. And uh, so those are the, the, the three key things. I think the other thing that gets communicated a lot is what's called the tolerance. So um, like even on the top level, people don't make the, the shot perfectly. There's a lot of like little micro misses, if you will. And it's kind of like, what, where is it okay to miss? Or where, where is it okay to, to put the stone if you don't get it exactly right? Uh, so that's also communicated. And in some ways, that's the most important part for the team because that's they're basically 
figuring out, okay, where can we get leave this stone if we don't get it perfectly to, to take advantage of a half miss? So you have a lot of, and we'll go behind the curtains here because there, there's a rundown where you you sent me all of the terminology you want to go through, and there's a lot here. Admittedly, there there's a lot. So there's a lot of like subtypes in in the shots that you were talking about. So you have the takeout, your draw, and your guard, and then there's different subtypes under that. So what is I guess different types of takeouts, different draws, different guards. Takeout, you'll hear it referred to as hit and. You know, like I said, the, there's the hit and stick and the hit and roll. You have doubles and triples where you're trying to remove two of your opponent's stones at once or three of your opponent's stones at once. Uh, and then one of the more common types of hits that you'll hear is called the run back where, you know, maybe a, a stone is behind a guard. You're going to try to hit that guard and send the guard into the house to take out a rock that's in the house. Those are those are hard for club players, but the guys at the Olympics are going to make those look really easy, and I guarantee you that they are not. <laughs> and going back to the hit and roll, you'll hear you'll hear the announcers refer to roll control, which and roll control a lot of times will determine whether a team wins or not. Honestly, it's where you can hit hit an open rock and then get your rock behind a guard so that it can't be taken out on the next shot. So doing that is really hard because I've I've been playing 12 years now and I have successfully hit and rolled under a guard on purpose once. <laughs> wow. <laughs> on purpose. That's yes. the uh, Yeah, the key the key phrase there is on purpose. <laughs> you want to move on to draws? After we talked about yeah, we talked about yeah. takeouts, let's talk about draws. Jonathan, explain the different types of draws to us. All right, so your basic draw is just putting a stone in the rings um, just to try to set a, set a point. But you rarely see that at the Olympics. So the most common, I'd say, would be a come around. So normally a guard will be up, and you're trying to draw your stone around that guard, buried, so the other team can't see it. So you're trying to hide behind the, the blocking stone. And so... You have to be accurate both in terms of your aim and in terms of how hard you throw it. So it's, that's actually a fairly tricky shot to put in the exact right spot. Then there's something called a freeze where you want to put your stone sitting right on top of another stone. And the reason you do that is that makes it very hard to remove your stone because it's stuck up against something else. Uh, and then the other two are what's called the split, which you probably won't see that often, but that just means you try to nudge one of the, the guard stones or blocking stones into the ring and also the stone you threw. So you're trying to get two stones counting out of one stone thrown. And then the fourth one's what's called a tap up or promotion or raise, where you try to knock one of your guards up into the ring and hopefully leave the one you threw in front as a guard. So those are the, the basic touch shots. So when you're watching curling as a casual fan, uh, how important is it to really know and understand those different types of shots? Um, I'd say the first thing to take away is to understand that when they're throwing it delicately, they're trying to, that's when they're trying to score a point or sit a, sit a point. So they're actually playing aggressively. They, to the casual fan, they look like the easy shots, but they're actually the harder ones, I'd say. That, that once you're playing at the Olympic level, 
your takeouts are all pretty basic. Uh, and the draws are actually what differentiate the really good teams from each other. It's a, it's a bit like golf. Like there's a saying in golf, like hit for show or drive for show, putt for dough, like in curling, the same expressions hit for hit for show, draw for dough is the kind of same idea. So when it's your turn to throw a stone, what is your favorite type of shot? Is it the softer ones where you have to be really strategic or do you like the, the ones where you're just throwing it as hard as possible to try and knock other people out? Well, I like throwing them as hard as possible because that's fun. But mm-hmm. uh, I think I think a really good draw is like I, I, honestly the best feeling is to to make your last draw to the button to win the game. Like if you do that, if when I do that, that's like the happiest I am. But probably the most fun is to try to throw a really hard stone and make a bunch of other stones go away. Like breaking, uh, breaking in pool almost, where you're just like, I'm gonna yeah. hit this as hard as I can. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly like that. And if you if you can get three or four stones flying, it's it's fun, right? Because it's the kinetic impact, the sound, the all of it. Do you want to go over weight? Because the, the you'll you'll hear some important things when they're talking about the weight, and that's kind of th- those are the things that are going to need the most explaining. Because those are going to be the things that they're going to say that people are going to be like, "What on earth are they saying?" Yeah, I mean, quick. I can quickly talk about it. So, but the the tricky part here is every team is going to have a different way of talking about weight. So again, weight is just the curling term for how hard the stone is being thrown, and you can throw it everything from a guard, so just getting into play, to basically as hard as humanly possible. Which which is basically it would take about five. So four to five seconds to run down a sheet of ice. Whereas normally when you're putting a stone in play, it can take 30 seconds. So there's a big variation in terms of how fast that stone travels. Yeah. So like um, we said, the person throwing the shot needs to know the ty- the shot type, but then they'll also hear from their skip, like how much weight to, to throw the or weight, which is basically how fast to throw the stone. Uh, down the ice. So Jonathan, take us from heaviest to lightest, what you're going to hear the skip say when they're communicating how fast I'm the person throwing the rock has to throw it down the ice. Well, okay, so the basic terms in English should be peel, which is as, as basically as normally as hard as you can play it. They may have a one that's a bit higher than peel. Then a normal hit weight, which is just a normal hit weight. <laughs> I don't know how to explain that to someone who's not know what curling is. Um, Control, which is a little bit softer, not as not throwing it as hard. Then board would mean throwing it so it's, the stone is just through the play and touching the backboard. Hack is even softer, so it's just through the rings and to the hack, which is the place the, the players push off from. And then backline is you just want to throw it hard enough to get to the back of the of the rings. So the, there's a couple of reasons why you would want to vary your weight. The harder you throw it, the straighter the stone's going to go. It's not going to curl. It's not going to move at all. So throwing a peel weight at the pro level, they just put the, they put the broom down and aim exactly where they want this, where they want to make contact. And a pro player will, will essentially be able to throw a really straight stone exactly where they want. And if they're trying to move a bunch of stones, you want to throw it hard because you got to get a lot of stones moving. So they'll tend to throw peel or normal on those kinds of shots. The ones that are slower that's because they want to control what the stone they've thrown is done. So they want to do a roll or they want to kind of tap something back a little bit. That's when they'll throw it softer. 
You'll hear a lot of different things, and most of them will refer to where in the house they want the rock to stop. Top of the 12-foot, which is the outer ring. Top of the 8-foot, which is the second closest ring. Top of the 4, and then right on the button. Uh, You'll also hear them refer to the T-line. Jonathan, why is the T-line so important? So that's the dead middle of the house, and the, the place you're guaranteed to be scoring is if you're sitting right in the middle of the rings on the pin. So the T-line would be the depth line for for button weight or pin weight. And that's because of physics. Like once you get past the T-line, you can't get any closer to the button. You can't get any closer to the button, and strategically it's bad because the other team can then just sit on your stone and get stuck in there. So there's a you you almost never want to go behind the T-line if you're playing a draw shot. Unless you're wanting to freeze on another rock that is already past the T-line, right? There, there are, like I said, that's why I said almost never, yeah. but it's generally a bad idea. Generally, if a team's thrown a draw and it's gone behind the T-line, it's bad. Also, when they're determining how hard they need to throw the rock, you're going to hear them tell each other a lot of times. Um, there's going to be a lot of a lot of numbers communicated between the person who's throwing the rock and the skip, or even between the person who's throwing the rock and the two sweepers. So the numbers that you'll hear them call are referring to times. Jonathan, what are they timing? Why are they timing it? And what on earth do those numbers mean? So I could be timing a bunch of things, but, but what... What most teams these days do is one of two times. So one's called a split time, where they're timing how long it took the player to deliver the stones. They time from when the stone crosses the near back line, when they push off, to the near hog line right after the player releases it. And that split time gives them a quick read on what the velocity of the stone is. Um, And... Basically, about a tenth of a second difference is about six feet of further travel. So it's actually a very precise thing. And if you're not skilled at it, if your timing's a little bit off, you can you can get thrown off a bit. But it's basically a way to get a quick read on how hard the stone's going. The other time you'll hear them using a lot is what's called a hog-to-hog time. So it's also um, a split time. But the two hog lines are like the the two thick black lines at either end of the sheet of plays. And so it's about 140 feet between them or 120 feet between them. And um, you basically try to time for how long it is, how long it takes to travel to get a sense of what the speed of the ice is. So at the Olympic level, it's about 14 to 14 and a half seconds, hog to hog. To draw to the middle, right? To draw to the middle. Yeah. Do you get to throw, do you get to throw like a practice stone or something like that to, to time things? Yeah. So yeah, each team actually practices for nine minutes before the game. So one team will go and practice first for nine minutes. And then the way they decide how a team has hammer, it has the last shot advantage, which is a big advantage, um, is each team will then throw two draws to the button at the end of their practice. And whichever team has a lower, closer, whichever team's cumulative distance is closer to the middle they get to go they get to go first they get to go they get hammer first so it's kind of like curling's version of the coin flip in a lot of sports but that's that's the way they decide who has the advantage it's a game of skill rather than a game of chance to go first well it's actually having hammer first is actually a really big advantage the team that has hammer in the first end normally wins 60 percent of the time and so 
for a long time, it was a coin flip. And then teams basically got really mad at that, that because the coin flip actually had a big impact on the outcome of the game. So they've, they've moved to this draw system in the last decade. So this is going to be uh, a little bit of a tangent just because I'm a hockey fan and Ryan, you know, this obsessed with hockey. So for curling ice, do they treat it the same way they treat uh, ice rinks for figure skaters and hockey players where they run the Zamboni over it and smooth, smooth, smooth things out. And like, is that how they treat the ice or cause you, cause you were talking about really bad ice and that was, and that's kind of, what got me thinking because I know for some of the winter classic games in the NHL they've been really bad because they'll be like I remember the one that was in DC in like 2014 and it was one of those rare 50 55 degree days in DC in January and the, the ice was just soft and they the players you could tell they couldn't get anything off so that's why I was like if you have bad ice versus good ice is it just the way it's treated is it because you're in a warm weather environment because when i was living in nashville you know i know that that was the biggest struggle for the predators was you know trying to keep their ice arena cold and keep the ice in good quality condition when it's 110 degrees outside yeah i play on bad ice because i play on hockey ice uh olympic (laughs) olympic curling ice no skate and no zamboni will touch that ice so it's like pure unadulterated ice is what you're saying yeah so like actually like for olympic ice it's actually deionized water and i remember i had to i was involved in an event once a championship once in the u.s and like the ice techs needed to know the ph level of the municipal water and then had to ship in (laughs) water with the right ph to counteract it It, it, it's very precise at at the olympic level so it's basically trying to be as pure water as possible as flat as possible, the ice plant actually runs a bit cooler. It's about one to two degrees centigrade cooler than than hockey ice or figure skating ice. And they put a little bit of like these little droplets of water called pebble. So they, they basically water the ice with something that's a bit like a watering can. And these little droplets kind of build up in layers. And that's what the stone slides over is actually these little bumps, not the flat ice surface. That's fascinating. I had no idea. I learned something. I mean, I'm, I planned on learning lots of new things coming on this podcast, but that's actually really cool. Cause, and I, and this might be me just being a little bit of a nerd, but seeing how different ice sports have to take care of their ice, especially when you're in a warm weather environment, like Nashville, Tennessee, like it is fascinating the lengths they have to go through in order to keep the ice playable. So I had no idea. I mean, I, I figured that curling ice in, at the Olympic level wouldn't be touched by figure skaters or hockey players, but just like the idea that they have to make sh- make sure that the ice is a certain pH level and you water the ice. That's crazy. Yeah. It takes, it takes a long time. Yeah. It takes like if they're just in between rounds, like they, they basically need two hours to take the sheet down and then build it back up. Like it's like, and it's super finicky. It's like a team of four or five guys out there, ice makers out there, just trying to kind of build it back up. So it's a bit again it's a lot like golf it's like the greens in golf like the ice techs are as crazy about ice as like your green keeper is about grass so we talked about the pebble and how that 
how the ice is set up, what sweeping does to that. But Jonathan, they're going to say a lot of things when they're commun. Like we said, they're going to need to communicate ice conditions. There's a lot of weird terms for for ice. Can you take us through the weird terms for ice that you're going to hear from these players as they're discussing the shot? Yeah. I, so so keen ice is kind of a term for if ice is very fast. So I, ice has very different playing speeds. Um, I know that sounds weird, but it can often it can depending on the ice surface, a stone the stone from the same the same kind of velocity could travel twenty to thirty feet further depending on an ice surface. So where Ryan plays, maybe even be forty feet where Ryan plays compared to the Olympic ice. So Ryan's <laughs> ice is going to be very slow. You got to throw it very hard. Where and whatever he throws there would probably just sail through uh, the the field of play at the Olympics. Mm-hmm. So that's keen ice. Heavy ice just means it's slow. Um, swingy ice means it curls a lot, so the stones curl a lot. And if it is straight ice or running straight, it means it doesn't curl. Um, fre- the fresh pebble often just means it's a pair area that hasn't been played on yet, and so that tends to be a faster area. Uh, and frost is kind of the bad thing in curling. So basically, if frost starts to build up, it makes it slow and makes the stones act a bit weird. So we don't like frost at all. Um, the other thing is that you'll hear, I think one of the things you'll hear at the Olympics a lot is it's getting fudgy or they'll complain about that late, late in the game. So the more, because humans are hot, the more they play on the ice, they're going to kind of melt the ice a little bit and wear it down. And that then makes the ice a bit slower later in the game. And so one, one of the tricks is which team kind of picks up those changes in the field of play quicker. All right, Meredith, we're to the fun part. Yes, the part where you <laughs> scream at each other. Yes. So the rock has been released. It is on its way toward the house. And this is where you're going to hear the skip and the two sweet. You'll hear the two sweepers communicating back and forth. You'll hear the skip communicating very loudly. Uh, this is where the screaming happens. Jonathan, why are they screaming? Okay, they're communicating everything. So <laughs> if you go, you go to like a curling camp, one of the things they'll say to a team, especially like a junior team, is we want to hear seven to eight pieces of communication from the team from the time the stone is thrown to when it stops. And so every player on the team has something they should be communicating. So often the player who throws the stone will let know to the sweepers how they threw it. They may say, oh, I did something with it, or they'll communicate if they like the release or not. The sweepers have to communicate how hard the stone is going. So you'll often hear them yelling down to the skip where they think the stone's going to end up. So they're communicating the weight. The skip is communicating whether or not they need to sleep to keep the stone straight. And they may also be calling an audible. They may be changing the shot mid-ice, calling a plan B, depending on how the shots are uh, acting. So that's why they're communicating. Uh, Are there any specific terms you want me to go through, Ryan? So as Jonathan said... They're going to be timing the rocks from that back line to the near hog line, which is the mandatory release line. It's going to be that thick line just a little bit um, above the house closest to the player that's throwing the rock. So they're going to, the, one of the first pieces of information you're going to hear screamed is from one of the sweepers to the skip, and it's going to be a number. So like Jonathan said, every tenth of a second is what, six feet, Jonathan, you think, on how how much further the walk the rock will travel about four to six feet depending on the ice condition so I, normally my rule of thumb is about six feet yep. 
So you'll hear them yell three, four. And what that is, is those are the tenths of a second difference or hundreds of a second difference based off of what they've timed with their stopwatch as the person is releasing the rock. So that's the first thing you'll hear. And that gives the skip and instantly gives an, gives the skip an idea of how hard the rock has actually been thrown. And so what's the skip usually going to yell back, Jonathan? They will yell back the line. So by that, they'll, they'll let the team know whether or not the player released the stone on target with a, their aim was accurate. If the player is a bit tight, they're a bit inside the line they're trying to hit, they'll normally start calling sweeping right away. In fact, it's normally a very bad sign if a team starts sweeping right away that mm-hmm. there's a chance they've missed it. Um, or the opposite, if they don't call sweeping at all, there's like right off, whoa, they could be very wide off target. So a quick way to kind of get a sense of if the players start off with a good shot or not is if if there's a kind of a, whoa, right off, forget it. And there's, there's some skips that are like, there's a Canadian skip who's quite infamous for laughing when his team's like way off. And, <laughs> and you can tell by his laugh how badly the players missed. Um, or or if they're kind of yelling right away quite frantically, those are both kind of bad signs. A sign that shots close is if you hear the players kind of calling the sweepers on and off. So they're just kind of really trying to fine tune where the stone makes contact. So that's a sign that it's very close and likely to be made. So what exactly are they screaming at each other in order to communicate that? I mean, outside of just straight up laughing at your teammates. Jonathan, what's your <laughs> Jonathan, what's your go-to sweep call? I think I'm a hurry hard guy, aren't I? You also yes. told you you also told me when I was skipping to yell sweep because sweep does not sound like off. Sweep does not sound like um any other word other than sweep. So if you want to be clear, yeah. Uh, one, you want to yell for, for your on or off. It's really not great to yell on or off because those two words sound very similar. You want two words from a skip that are very different. And so there's no, oh, I did I couldn't understand what you were saying. Like sweep only sounds like sweep. Um, and then also not a whole lot of other skips yell sweep. So if you're yelling, so if they hear someone else saying hard, they're like, oh, that's not my skip. My skip says sweep. That's what you told yeah. me the one time that I had to skip while you were like at a conference. That's a good advice. I wish I followed my own <laughs> advice. Can you can you make up your own words? Like if if everyone understands what yeah. it means, like you know. So for example, and I'll use the Browns for this because it's you know my my current job. Uh, Kevin Stefanski is really he's notorious for calling trick plays, and they call them banana plays. Uh, I don't know if they still do. I know they did it uh, last year in his first year. So if someone said banana, then you would know that it was either OBJ or Jarvis. We're going to get the ball and toss it down the field. So could you do something like that in curling where, okay, if the shot is on target and everyone knows that it's on target, can you like say something like banana or any other made up word as long as everyone knows what it means? You could. Yeah, a lot of teams do. I think they like... Um, I, I, they normally you'll you rarely hear a team communicate if a shot's made well or not as it's throwing. They're they're just managing it. Probably if it's close to being made, you might hear just clean, which is like just have a stone in front of the the rock, just keeping the path clean, which is like kind of a normally sign that it's got, it's going to be made. Um, they do have a lot of other codes for other things. So so most of the language normally concerns the shot selection. And they'll come up, there's like, 
for the weight stuff, there's all kinds of weird calls, right? There's like, there's a team out of BC that has just chill weight because they're a bunch of, you know, hippies no, in BC or whatever. Oh, yeah. And then, well, there was another team from British Columbia that uh, they had comfy weight, which I had never heard before. <laughs> comfy weight. So that's the thing they'll make up. Um, there's a little bit of regional difference. So the Scots talk about strike weight and barrier weight, whereas the Canadians talk about board weight and takeout weight or hit weight or normal. Um, so there's like a little bit of like regional difference. Yep. Um, also, what's great about the Olympics is they're all from different countries. So you're, if if you're from Denmark, you're not getting, and someone's yelling sweep in Danish. That means it's your, it's your skip. It's not going to be the American skip yelling sweep in Danish. That was yeah. going to be the other question I asked. Um, and I know that you guys haven't played in the Olympics, but do you think Olymp- people who have been in the Olympics learn the terms in other languages? Like, do you think they try to figure out what sweep or hard is in German or Japanese <laughs> or Chinese? Like before, like, they're like, all right, guys, we're going up against Germany tonight. We need to figure out how to say hard in German. I think they play each other enough that they've probably picked up a little bit here and there, especially if particular teams have particular ways that they talk about strategy. I'm sure that the the smarter skips will pick up on, hey, I rem- that's a phrase that I've heard them say before. I'm sure that's happened because they play each other so much that that's the, they know each other's tendencies yeah. probably without even knowing uh, knowing their language. Plus, with with analytics now, and analytics has become a big part of curling. You probably have the scouting report and don't need, uh, probably don't probably don't need to be able to speak the language as much anymore, just because everything, uh, all the stats actually exist now. Yeah, I, I, it's not like so. The things that curlers would try to like steal from each other in terms of information about the other team is not the sweeping calls at all. They would try to steal the stone information, like what stones the team throw, because there's differences in how the stones behave. Um, because curling's iterative, you, you don't necessarily need to steal the strategy, but you do need to have a good sense of like, if this team does this, will they do that? Like where you can get caught out is if you assume the other team's going to do one thing and you start playing with that assumption and they change up on you, you can get caught out with that. So, so kind of knowing your opponent's strategic tendencies matters. So that, and that's just basically watching the other games and seeing how they play it. All right. So we talked about pre-shot. We talked about mid-shot. Let's talk about after the shot. And this is the Olympics. So even when they make a shot, there's going to be variations of, of making it. So a lot of times when they talk post-shot, they talk about how the shot was missed. Um, you know, this is, the sport is really easy to learn, but it's impossible to perfect. So even the best missed shots, there are a lot of different ways to miss a curling shot. And I invent a new one about every time that I play, <laughs> as Jonathan can attest. Uh, and after a shot doesn't go exactly as it was called by the skip, you'll hear the players and announcers try to explain what happened. So Jonathan, tell us all the different ways that I have missed a curling shot. <laughs> I, I, my favorite part at this part of the game is watching the body language and you can often pick up a hot mic moment or two as well. Right. So, and that can be very revealing both in terms of if they like the shot or not, but also like, like in terms of the psychological battle, like if a team's kind of coming, it's if the wheels are falling off on a team, often they'll just get frustrated and they'll start to show with half misses and how they react to that. Um, so like, the, the the most common way 
players miss is they'll do something weird on the release. So you'll hear a lot of the time talking about releases. They'll say you may have popped it, which means on their release, they may have shoved the stone off out, outside a bit, or they may talk about a soft release, which means they didn't get the stone rotating enough. They spent a lot of time talking about how much rotation a stone has, because that really matters for how the stone behaves. And then they'll spend a lot of time talking about the weight. Was it too heavy? So did the stone go too fast or was it not fast enough? And then they'll also talk about the aim where they, the inside or outside the target. So it's basically line of delivery. So are they on target? How hard they threw it and how they released it are basically the three ways you can miss a shot. I tell you what, Jonathan, let's go over the checklist because I have a bunch listed here. Tell me mm-hmm. if you, if you've seen me miss this way and then explain what it means. Uh, okay, Ryan, you were too tight or you were too narrow. Uh, that meant your aim was off. Have I done yes, that? Yes, you've missed both ways. Yes. <laughs> uh, wide. <laughs> yes. That just means you aimed wide. You missed wide. <laughs> okay. So if I'm right-handed, I was to the right of your broom. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, have I been too light? Yes, although your tendency is to be too heavy. <laughs> what does that mean? That means you throw it too hard. <laughs> too soft to release. Uh, your your release is actually not that bad, but hey. soft release just means it's not it don't, it's not spinning that much, is what they mean by a soft release. You didn't get as enough as much rotation as you wanted on the stone. Have I ever hit a rock too thick? Yes. What does that mean? <laughs> It means you hit more of the stone that you're aiming for than you wanted to. And so what's the what's usually the result there? Well, you, what, what will it, keep, normally yeah. it's a problem if you're trying for a hit and roll, and if you hit it too thick, it's it's hard to get a roll. So you normally, if you're doing a hit and roll, you have to hit about half the stone, somewhere around there to roll it. So too thick means you probably hit like three quarters, four fifths of the stone. Or I hit it on the beak. I hit it right on the nose, yeah. And so it's not that in that case, the stone's not going anywhere. Uh, have I ever hit a rock too thin? Yes. <laughs> and then what? And then what happens? Uh, normally, if you hit it too thin, then your stone will also go out of play. Or if you hit it really thin, the other stone won't go out of play at all—the one you're trying to take out. Uh, have I ever wrecked? Yes, that means you're trying to go around a guard and you touch the guard and miss entirely. Uh, have I ever flashed? <laughs> yes, that means you get nothing. It's just an air. It's the curling version of an air ball. It's not good. Hopefully, we don't see too many of those at the Olympics. Have I ever jammed? Pro- I can't remember, but probably. <laughs> it doesn't stick out. It's something you do, but it's probably happened. Have you ever jammed? Uh, probably. What does that mean? So that means. So normally this happens if there's a stone in the back of the rings and you're trying to remove one stone and the stone you're trying to take out hits a stone in the back of the rings and sticks around. And that's actually a fairly common miss at the Olympic level. Flashing is fairly rare. Jams happen a lot just because they're so precise with the angles and if they're off by just a little bit, that tends to be where they get in trouble. And have I ever rolled out? Yes, and that just means you wanted to keep the stone you threw in play. You hit the other stone, and then your stone rolled away also, so you only got half a shot there, which is better than no shot. So flashing would be you didn't get anything, which is terrible. Rolling out's kind of a half shot. 
I feel like I'd be the person to to flash. I'd get the air ball every time. <laughs> yeah, it's like I when people start, often it's often they think the takeout's the harder shot and it is when you're beginning, but after after a little bit of time, flashing becomes rarer and it's more it's actually more the touch start stuff that's a bit trickier, but yeah. I feel like the hardest shot, and to me, for as a spectator, what looks like the hardest shot is the one where you're trying to essentially get your stone around another one. So you throw it, and then you're trying to get it to curve around. So if you're trying to avoid a guard or trying to get it closer to the button, and you're you're throwing it, and you're giving it that a little bit of curve, to me, that always looked like it was the most difficult because you have to throw it in a certain way, but then your sweepers have to also sweep in the correct spots to get the the stone to go where you want it to go so it's hard for me it's easy for these guys the reason for that is their ice as jonathan said sometimes ice can be really swingy well in the olympics you want the ice to be really swingy so if you're wanting to get a draw shot directly behind a guard at the olympics you're really not going to come very close to that guard or at least you shouldn't uh whereas on club ice the stuff i play on the rocks don't curl that much so i got to get it pretty close to that guard in order to get the my draw right behind it and that's where as we just said you can wreck on a guard as as i am wont to do i can't even imagine playing on hockey ice because man those guys they destroy the ice that they play on (laughs) Yeah. Like well, there's always, <laughs> you, you always want to play you always want to play out after the mites because the mites don't leave nearly as thick a cuts in the <laughs> ice as the senior level guys who are tripping all over themselves and living leaving divots. You want to play after the mites. <laughs> all right, Meredith, thank you so much for joining us. What is the what is the piece of information you learned today that you are going to use to try to impress people as you're watching the Beijing Olympics? Well, I learned a lot, especially about the ice, which I find most fascinating. All right. And let everybody know where they can follow you, where they can find your podcast. Uh, basically, well, if, if you want to be found, like where can people oh, find sure. you on the internet? <laughs> uh, my Twitter is at MK on sports. If you want to follow me there, um, it's mostly Cleveland sports content, but there's a lot of other stuff there. Um, a lot of hockey content during the winter time. Um, and then also if you wanted to listen to our podcast, which again is mostly Cleveland sports, but we do, uh, more than just Browns and more than just Cleveland sports. We'll do, um, the bigger picture. A lot of times it's called, that's what B said. Uh, and you can find it on any platform that you download podcasts. So, uh, Apple, uh, Spotify, Stitcher, Odyssey, all those fun platforms where you can download your podcasts. All right, and hopefully we'll see you uh, live tweeting the curling as well. Oh my God, cannot (laughs) wait. Thank you for listening to Rocks Across the Pond, a curling podcast. If you enjoyed this show, we ask you to please leave a review or tell a friend about us. Your referrals to friends and family are the greatest compliment we can receive and is what allows our show to grow and share our love of this great game. You can find all of our past shows and blog posts at rocksacrossthepond.com. If you have a question or comment, you can reach us at rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you again for taking the time to listen to us, and we will talk to you again real soon.